Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi, it's Mike Pannell, and welcome to another Veterinary Business Matters Podcast, brought to you by Oculus Insights. And once again, I am joined by Katie Arline, one of my partners at Oculus and our human resource expert. Welcome back, Katie. Greetings, Michael. How are things? Oh, just dandy. Katie and I talk a lot. We haven't seen each other in about four months, but Zoom helps. Um, but still, it's, it's a weird time, and we'll, we'll sort of get into that a little bit. Uh, weird times bring weird behavior when it comes to managing people. So. As always, when we're talking about human resources, Katie's got an article she wants to share and discuss. I have one I want to share and discuss. And then we will get into our wins and fails in the world of human resources since the last time we spoke. I think we both have some doozies on both sides of the equation. So, Katie, let's Mm. go back to you and let's say, what is your article du jour? My article du jour is from two jours ago. So it's um, from the CBC and it's about uh, a four day. CBC, that for non Canadians, is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the mothership, our national broadcaster. Yeah. So uh, obviously they do news all across Canada and around the world. So this particular article is from their business section and it's entitled, very long. Four-day work week with fewer hours, same pay, could become a reality in some workplaces post-COVID-19. So basically, article uh, centers around whether um, working fewer hours could actually boost productivity, which sounds really counterintuitive. But they make some interesting points in the article. Uh, You know, obviously, with having to uh, juggle things post-COVID and wanting less people together at the same time, Obviously, this is something that uh, would be at uh, front of people's minds as as an option. Uh, But I think what's interesting about this, I mean, obviously, a shorter work week is one thing. So working four days and working, you know, if you're an eight-hour day, working 32 hours. But what they're talking about here is a four-day work week, A, where you still work 40 hours, so it's just four longer days. Uh, But the other flip side of that is working four days a week, but actually getting paid for five days. So working eight to five or whatever the regular schedule is, um, working 80% time and getting 100% pay. So it was interesting when I saw this article, because I know that this is something that uh, you've put in place in a key panel. So I thought this would be a perfect thing to talk about because you have firsthand experience on how it worked. Yeah, no, I know we did that. And I, I read this article, I read it a couple of times, and it's, it, it sounds like a great idea. And I get where they're coming from. But I think we'll get to that by the end. I think this only applies to certain types of workers, mm-hmm. or employees, in terms of those who have to, uh, let's put it this way, they create outputs. Yes. So knowledge workers, for example, if, if you're somebody that creates, or you're a consultant, or a veterinarian, you know, this could be very much so. And, and so, the, as you said, the example I had about four years ago, we did our first employee engagement survey at McKee Panel, and people who have heard me present are probably going, oh, not this story again. But it, it's quick. It's quick. Not everybody's heard it. But, you know, we did our first employee engagement survey. We got a 77%, which is high, 
But, you know, what was interesting is that the vets scored 73 and the support staff scored about 80. So I was like, well, what's going on here? Why the gap? And really what it came down to with the vets, a couple of things is they're just tired by the time uh, spring comes around. We're in the northeast of, the, of North America. That's our busy season. People get tired. Uh, they're just getting a little bit burnt out. We'll talk about burnout soon. But what we also found is that, you know, they just they didn't have good humor. They didn't enjoy their jobs anymore. All the classic signs of burnout. And so I said, you know, this is not good. I mean, boy, we, we uh, only get so many vets that want to come out of practice, that want to go into equine practice. You know, there's a real shortage of vets globally. So, boy, you don't want to be that vet where people just get burnt out, revolve through it, crash out of the profession. That's just not anything that we wanted to do. So we had to take some drastic measures. And so one of the things I thought about uh, was like, wow, you know, what can we do? It just came to me. I was just thinking, I was like, let's do a four day work week. Mm-hmm. And because I said, you know, the, the, the mental health of our veterinarians is of course highly important. You know, we're a profession with the horrible, horrible statistic, highest rate of suicide in any profession. You know, we got to do something proactive. We just can't go along with status quo. So we went to the four day work week. And I went to the vets and I said, okay, we're going to go to a four-day work week. My theory is, is that you're going to be more productive because you're going to be fresher. But even at the very least, if you're happier and more engaged with your work and a happier employee, I mean, that's just good for the profession. It's good for our business. Sounds altruistic, but if our profession is burning out people like that, we got to do something different. We started July 1st, 2016 and you know, okay, our capacity is down 20%. So I start tracking numbers every month. I'm looking from, you know, July 16th to July 2015. And I'm thinking our sales should be down 20%, you know, maybe 15%. We raise our fees a little bit, but the pattern should be every month we should be billing more because we have less capacity. What ended up happening at the end of the year is our sales were up 13%. And in fact, we uh, had lost a vet in that period. So we were down 20% plus another vet. And so, I, you know, so to be up 13% was just staggering. Uh, so on the business side, it worked. And when I started to investigate further, when I talked to vets, is like they just enjoyed being a vet more on their four days. They were engaged. They were refreshed. Uh, one of the vets I were saying, she was like, I actually enjoy being a vet again. Um, on my day off, I'm actually reading journal articles. And so I'm getting educated and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, you come home and you have a busy practice and you have a family or other obligations and, you know, there's still some medical records you've got to do and emails and you're like, you know what, I can do it on Friday. I have the day off and I'm better during the week. It really like, wow. Next year we did our employee engagement survey and the score jumped way up. And so now the vets and the support staff are at the same rate. And what's really cool, as I remember explaining this to a, a colleague who owned a vet practice in, in Germany, and he said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. He was a young, forward-thinking vet practice owner. And, and he reported back to me about a year later that he had the same effect, that his staff is more energized, his revenues went up. So I'm convinced that you know when you are in control of your output of what you can do, I think the four-day work week in our situation for vet practices, 100%, 100% it made sense. My concern with it, though, is, you know, so we have hours, we're open eight to five. So if we said, okay, all right, you're going to work to a receptionist or a technician uh, or a vet assistant, all right, you're going to work eight till six. Yeah. 
four 10 hour days type thing or eight mm. till seven we're closed after five and you know yes we have our busy time of the year but a lot of the times we're done like done at five so what are they going to do so maybe there's some projects they can find but then we're going to end up having to hire other people to be around with the vets uh, on the, that fifth day so that's where i worry and then i also worry about you know our customer service representatives our receptionists again i mean they can't be more productive if nobody's phoning it's not like you can say all right everybody phone between these hours <laughs> I don't know. I'm, and I'm, if you have any answers or solutions, I'm, I'm all ears, but that's where I wrestle with. Well, definitely. I mean, in the article, you know, one of the drawbacks that they were mentioning is the, the challenge of scheduling. And you sort of at, um, you know, an equine ambulatory veterinary practice, you have kind of two classes of workers or not classes, but two types of workers. You have the veterinarians, like you said, who are, it's very output based and, you know, you either see the call in half an hour or an hour or whatever the case may be, but yeah, definitely the support staff, it's a bit more difficult to really get them scheduled. Have you had some of your support staff go on a four-day week, but with 80% pay? Yeah, some people have just said, I, I just want to work four days. You know, that's right. fine. I, we're playing around with it. And I, one of the things I'm exploring with is that if you have a vet on a four-day week and pair up a vet technician or assistant with them for that four-day week, and you could do this in a companion animal practice or a mixed animal practice. And it's sort of like, all right, we're both going to work these days. We're both going to make the same amount of money. And so when, you know, when they're done, even if they get done sooner or the vet's going to maybe do some work on their day off, well, maybe the technician stays later and they're doing something. You got to, I think there's things that we could probably use our technicians, our support staff that adds value to our customers. Maybe they're more involved in client follow-ups, client communications. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they can be doing some of the medical records if it was dictated, you know, collecting imaging. I, you know, I don't know. I think there's where the creativity has to come in. I think another important factor that I, I didn't mention earlier, you know, because the question always is, is like, well, you know, if the same capacity, how would you get so much more business? I mean, that's quite a remarkable jump. The office, we got a lot smarter in how we scheduled. Mm-hmm. So I can see that in any kind of practice too. And so if you're a small animal practice, any animal practice and doing, you know, 30 minute appointments or 20 minute appointments, depending on your style, you know. If you're more efficient, you're fresher, maybe you'd, you know, you cut off five minutes an appointment and over a day, over a number of vets, over a week, that adds up to a considerable amount of money, those blocks of times. Because if you cut five minutes off every appointment, able to go in there, use your technicians maybe more effectively in the appointment if five times, you know, you'd say you did two points in an hour, you know, pretty, you're, you're gaining about two appointment slots a day. So yeah. I, I think you know, this is also an organizational operations problem too, if you're going to mm-hmm. go to the four-day week, especially if you're having to rely on other people. If you're just uh, a consultant or a, a writer or somebody can that can work in an office, you don't rely on a lot of people, well, heck yeah, four days, you can work four nights a week. I think the other key concept from this article was is like, who cares the amount of hours they work? What we really care about is the output. Yes. And, and and so I think if you can control your output in a period of time and you can do it in three days and you're getting paid for five, go at it, man. Like just, that's wonderful. That's an interesting point. Did you find that any of the veterinarians uh, who might've been less efficient themselves became more efficient as a result? You know, those people who said, I can never be, I can, I can't pick up the pace at all. Uh, what happened with that? Well, I think, again, when it came down to how we organized things and we scheduled things, you know, the system allowed them, the process allowed them to be more organized. And I think that helped. My biggest concern with these is just like when you have an hourly basis or you have clients that are calling in and 
you know, they're expecting to talk to somebody between eight and five. It's, it's going to be hard to say, okay, yeah, work four 10 hour days. We got to find ways to add value or to be doing some great things that are important to the company when we're not client facing. Yeah, I wondered as you're saying that. I wonder. I mean, the your veterinarians are on salary, obviously, uh, so that's yes. not you're not measuring hourly output. I wonder what would happen if the support staff were on salary. You know, convert their hourly wage into a salary. Uh, I wonder if that would make things easier because then you wouldn't necessarily be worried about filling ten hours. Uh, sure. But are you allowed to do that? I mean, I think there's certain classes of a job where you can go on a salary. And I think you have to be a managerial or responsible or a professional. So Yeah, it depends on the jurisdiction. I mean, in Ontario, where we're based, you could definitely have somebody on a salary at any rate. But I know, okay. say, in California, where we have uh, a client, the salary minimum, I think, is like $56,000 a year or something like that. So it'd be kind of a radical way of thinking to to bring salary into roles that are traditionally hourly based. And it could be a pickle. I mean, that might create more challenges with scheduling to make sure that they get all their hours. Uh, but it'd be, it might be something interesting to look at to see what would happen. But I mean, it's sort of like tomato, tomato, you're an hourly wage. I'm going to pay you 40 hours a week. Yeah. You're going to work maybe 36, but if your 36 hours are dynamic and again, who cares really? Yeah. That's true. And, you know, I think this may be a way where we can attract better people mm -hmm. because sometimes, you know, hey, you're going to work 36 hours or 38 hours and get paid for 40. That's not bad. But I think the underlying organization or the processes have to really think about how do we address this? For example, every business has things where like, oh, I wish we could just get to this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so like, say, for example, we talked about a receptionist. Hey, you know what? Uh, you're going to work four days, 10 hours a day. Yes, we're only open for eight hours. But for the other two, can you collect some data for me? I want to research certain stuff about our practice. Mm -hmm. And that kind of insight can, you know, hey, we should be offering this service or why aren't we all charging this price? I mean, you know, imagination can run wild on things you can do that they could add value for the practice. Definitely. Yeah. It could just be difficult for practice owners to sort of see, like find that value. Uh, I mean, you had very, very black and white outcomes as far as uh, increased revenue, but it could be difficult, right? Like, well, how do I actually measure the bottom line of uh, having better information or updating client files uh, as a big project or whatever the case may be. So that could be a challenge. Yeah. And I think there's something that as a team, you can get together and go, all right, what do we never have time to do? Mm -hmm. And then I think as a business owners, you have to look at it and go, okay, I am giving up, you know, I've got 10 employees and they're giving up two hours a day. So that's like 20 hours a day that I'm paying for, you know, what kind of substantial information or value to clients or marketing or whatever that will really give that back in spades. Yeah. Definitely. But you know what? I think this is actually a great segue into the article. Oh, I imagine that. <laughs> I know. It's funny. I uh, subscribe to Gallup. They not just do surveys for a nerd. Uh, but I am a nerd. But I get their weekly newsletter on things that relate to human resources. And one that caught me this week was employee burnout, the biggest myth. And sort of the myth always is, is that it's hours. It's based on the amount of hours people work. And mm -hmm. just going back to where talking about vets and the hours they worked or support staff and the hours they worked. And so basically 76% of employees that they surveyed 
experience burnout on the job that they say at least sometimes and 28% say they are burnt out very often or always at work. And in veterinary medicine, burnout within vets is such a huge factor. Absolutely. We've all experienced who've practiced vet medicine. As veterinarians, when we leave at the end of the day, when everybody else leaves at the end of the day, we're still thinking about cases. We're still thinking about follow-up for clients. There's a lot going on. And so, you know, they started looking at it and go, you know, the assumption is that employee burnout is caused just because of overwork. Too many hours that, you know, you can fix burnout by taking some time off, take a vacation. Hey, change is as good as a rest all that stuff. And what the reality is that their analysis show that the number of hours people work does matter with burnout increasing what they say significantly when employees exceed 50 hours and climbing higher after 60 hours. But really the key part is how they experience their workload has a stronger influence on burnout than hours worked. So I kind of like this article because it kind of confirmed my own bias, but it's not a bias, but in terms of highly engaged employees or employee engagement is such a valuable thing for a business. And this is something that we really harp on and on and on. And we do our employee engagement surveys and we, you know, we just kind of know that employee engagement really gives us a, a measurement of how well a practice is doing factors that are in the practice. So what they say that even people that enjoy their work, if they have inspired, if they're motivated, if they're supporting their work, they'll do actually more work Mm-hmm. And they'll be less stressed about it. And they'll actually, their overall health and well-being will be better. So in other words, it's not the number of hours you work. It's how you're managed and how you experience work during those hours. And so they came up with five factors that correlate most highly with employee burnout. So not causing it, but it correlates. Mm-hmm. So unfair treatment at work, unmanageable workload, unclear communication from managers, lack of manager support, and unreasonable time pressure. So what do you think of that? I mean, when, when I read that list off, when I read these findings, what comes to your mind? I guess, isn't unmanageable workload kind of, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what happens with burnout. So to me, it's kind of like, yeah, duh. what really po- um, pops out for me is the unclear communication for managers, lack of manager support. Those are two huge employee engagement factors that we see. And, and those subjects come up time and time again when we do employee engagement surveys in the comments and when we interview people. So, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah, unfair treatment at work, unmanageable workload, unreasonable time pressure. Those would be your sort of traditional, this is what makes burnout. But uh, I don't know that the common hive mind has necessarily focused on the manager, the manager influence on all of this. So it's really interesting. At the same time, we've heard these before that people leave jobs, not because they don't like the job, but usually it's because they don't like their manager. True. Um, and, and so what they talk about is that, you know, ineffective managers become the, the cause of burnout rather than the cure. They, you know, they say they treat employees unfairly. They burden employees with impossible expectations. They provide little support. And I know in practices that we have visited, and you visit more practices than I do when it comes to HR, that's a common factor we have seen. And I mean, that's, we've seen that in Europe, we've seen this in North America, is how people manage their people is often the critical factor we see. Definitely. And when you're stressed in one area, it could be that the, the extra work that you're doing or the workload in regular circumstances, you'd be able to handle that. But when you pair that with a manager who's unreasonable or, you know, a bully or just really incompetent or, or doesn't care really amplifies things. 
in the vet practice situation, I just I was thinking of that when you're talking about it is, I mean, when we talk about managers, there's the title managers, but in your experience, who are or what roles can be the managers in, in a vet practice? You mean like what people are specifically in control of other people? Basically, yeah. Terrible. Uh, They control the work environment and the expectations. Yeah. I mean, in vet, I'd say that the majority of vet practices, it's going to be practice ownership uh, or a practice manager that's been hired specifically to do that job. I feel like you asked that because, uh, you know, maybe we should be looking at who else can be having a hand in being a leader or having people manage themselves. Actually, why I was asking it is I think as I was thinking about it, it just sort of, I think, veterinarians that work with technicians or mm-hmm. vet assistants uh with receptionists they're in effect managers because they are here's my expectation here's the work i want you to get done office managers don't necessarily aren't responsible for how you know what sterile happens. packs are made yeah, yeah. you know or, or how clean the or is or what have you so i think you know i think there's a lot of managerial roles or roles that we have within a vet practice that influence other people's outcomes. We're back to outcomes again. Yep. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. I come to it because, you know, the last part of the article was one of those other aha moments that or sort of, you know, we kind of knew it, but I never put it in this context. And that is we don't really train managers. And so when you think about, you know, you can get an office manager and, and, and there are some certifications and, you know, they could have some great training. We don't necessarily train our veterinarians. Or we don't necessarily train our LVTs or, or technicians no. who are managing others. It's sort of like, all right, you're the head tech now. Yeah, go or, do it you know, because I don't just know how do to it. do it either. So. Yeah, yeah. so it's the blind leading the blind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's really a, a huge untapped you know, way of making people's work lives better in that you know, paying some attention to, to getting your managers trained, even if it's if something you can't do within your own practice, then you know, finding somebody who can help you do that. I mean, the, the tendency of veterinarians is micromanage. And maybe I'm being unfair to, to veterinarians, but it is, a, it's something that we see a lot. And I think that my, my opinion is at least micromanagement comes a lot from their, your own insecurity about your job and trying to control everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and just so worried about other people making a mistake. Mm-hmm. And you know, how it affects you. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And so I think manager training is so huge. And I bring up training because we talk a lot about training employees and having dedicated training program, giving people time to train. You know, one of the common refrains we get from our employee engagement surveys is training is basically, oh, you're a receptionist, here's the phone, go for it. I mean, it's you know, I'm exaggerating, yeah, but it's, it you know, yeah, it's it's basically so figure it out. So you're, you're setting everybody up for just a really unreasonable work environment because there are no expectations. There is no thought of what people should be do, how they should do it. So, you know, I think training is one area where we could really alleviate a lot of this burnout by not only training staff, but I think dedicated training managers. Mm-hmm. There's managers and there's leaders, right? So it's not even necessarily... Um, training a manager on how to make sure that the outcomes or the outputs happen, but also, you know, how to deal with people and how, you know, to get away. I think, you know, that you brought up micromanaging and that's really definitely a huge theme that we see at a lot of the practices we talk to is the management micromanages. And that's about trust. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of more of a, a leadership type trait that needs to be developed. Um, sure. So alongside making sure, you know, you know how to fix computers if they break or, 
who to call if the internet goes down. There's also the soft skills side of things and how to make people happier at work or how to not make them unhappy, I guess, might be a better way of looking at it. You sort of go up the hierarchy and, you know, you might have the managers with the best intentions, but you have the practice owner who may be unreasonable. And so undermines, undermines, yeah. And so, you know, shit flows down and it just keeps on going down to people. This burnout is usually a, let's call it a symptom, Symptom. which is an underlying organizational dysfunction. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about organizational dysfunctions, let's go to our win. Let's go to our fails and wins. Let's start with our fails so we can end on a positive note. So I'll give you my fail for the week and then we'll go to yours. One of the companies I admire a lot for what they're doing is Tesla. Really admire them. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I would love to have a Tesla. Elon Musk can be such a twit sometimes. You know, he can be provocative and what have you. But he wanted to open up the one factory in California and he threatened the the town leaders that he's going to move the factory. And this was just, you know, the COVID pandemic and and California and this town had not opened up yet. And he insisted on opening up. He basically used his position of a big employer to sort of force their hands. And and then, yes, a lot of people caused a bit of an outbreak in the town. So well done there, Elon. But last week, to commemorate Juneteenth, he gave all of his employees a holiday. But, <laughs> oh, you've got to take that as a paid time off. Yeah. And he told people in the morning when some people were already at work. And it was like, oh, yeah, you can take today off, but it's going to be a paid day off. You're an unpaid day off. And I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, you're yeah. a genius in developing an electronic car, and you're so far ahead of the curve. But you're an idiot when it comes to dealing with people. And it just, you know, I'm just like... Yeah. Somebody smack you. I'm yeah, embarrassed seriously. you spent years living in Canada. Horrible. Like I'll take your Starlink satellites for my terrible country internet, but this is just like beyond the pale for sure. Yeah. So that's my fail of the week. What's mm. your fail? Oh, my fail uh, is somebody who, you know, also has excellent ideas, but I feel like this is a bit of a failure. So here in Canada, we have a big grocery conglomerate called Loblaw. Um, and the... Uh, it's not... I just want... Just be, yeah. It's not called blah, blah. It's lob, blah, L-O-B, <laughs> blah, blah. So, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so uh, the figurehead or the head of, of blah, blah is Galen Weston. The Weston family has been up in our pantries for a really long time. So there's all of these stores all across Canada, giant grocery stores where people obviously have still had to come to work. You know, when the pandemic first started a couple of minutes or a couple of weeks later, uh, Gail and Weston, you know, said everybody is going to get a $2 an hour pandemic pay increase. So that's awesome. I think that's great. I think, you know, at the time I sent you the article and I was like, look at Gail and go, he's really nailing this. Uh, and then last week he sent out an email and I get them because I belong to like their club. And you're calling me a nerd. I know big time. So, um, he sent out an email last week wow. and he said, Oh, here are the things we're doing in the stores and we're really great and we're happy. And we think it's time to stop the the danger pay, basically, for staff. And this is last week. Uh, COVID is far from over. It's not like anybody's fully open anywhere. And these staff, it's not like the risk has gone down. So uh, I feel like the optics there, and this is a company with a billion, like huge, huge revenues, you know, top families in Canada as far as net worth, all of that kind of thing. Um, so I think, you know, to trickle down with a person making pizza who, uh, could arguably probably make the same amount of money being on, you know, the COVID version of unemployment. This is kind of disgusting to me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just, and the timing it's, it's, you know, this is far from over, but the grocery stores and those people still have to be there. So that's my fail. Not very nice at a gallon. No, sad. no, it's funny. And it's funny because when you look at the competition and others are not doing it too. So it's not like he's leading an industry wide change on this. So yeah, I think people get kind of short-sighted. Definitely. So, all right, let's end on a good note. So I got a win. Yeah, so um, my win, and I never thought in my life I'd ever hear me say that I admire NASCAR. Yeah. So for our, our colleagues outside of the North America, NASCAR is an auto racing organization. And um, it is, you know, there's been a lot of this discussion since um, Black Lives Matter, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd of you know really looking and let, let's come to a reckoning and look at some of the confederate imagery that goes on in, in the united states and uh, nascar came up and said that you know what we're we're not allowing any decals emblems anything of any kind of confederate logos imagery and that's huge because mm-hmm. the bulk of their audience is from the south and so they are potentially risking a large part of their audience to do what they think is right. Yes. And why I like this is because we're always coaching and talking to people that your business has values and you have to live by your values. And a great value is something that you're going to do, even if it's a competitive disadvantage. And that by living your value, you may lose money. And I thought, bravo, NASCAR, you're doing what's right it will probably lose you some fans, mm-hmm. but it'll probably gain you some too. Absolutely. And I just thought, you know, that's just spot on. And I just, I'm, you know, you know, you just gave the example of, of, of Loblaws and, and not being the best role model for society, but boy, you're looking at a lot of industries and other corporations that are actually elevating what society is by taking a stand. So I'll say it again. And you'll never probably never, ever hear me say it again. <laughs> Bravo NASCAR. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, okay, so mine is a bit like not even business related, not even HR related, any of that stuff. So um, my story comes from Verona, Italy, where they were obviously very locked down, you know, I think much more um, severely than we were here in North America, uh, much earlier than we were. And in a lot of Italian towns and other towns, um, they were doing, you know, a daily sort of get out on your balcony and have a sing-along type of deal. And people would play instruments and people would sing, et cetera, et cetera. So in this town of Verona, there was, uh, you know, a woman and her sister lived in one apartment and the sister played the violin and they would get out on their balcony and across the way, there was a guy that was out on his balcony and basically he, his gaze went right to um, the sister, uh, not the violin playing one, but the one that was singing. And basically it was like love at first sight and it actually happened for both of them. So he found her on Instagram uh, and it's not as creepy as it sounds because the the, um, lady in this case, she knows uh, the brother of this guy. So it's not like really creepy stalker stuff, but Basically, he um, hunted her down in a positive, happy way. And uh, they talked for like hours and hours that first day. And basically, they've fallen in love. Uh, And, uh, you know, and they haven't actually met each other in person. And they vowed to like keep apart until the lockdown was finished. But I thought it was a really sweet story. Um, You know, at least for them, there was a positive outcome from Corona. So that's my win. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's a good one. You know, and I want to emphasize when everybody says, why do I hate NASCAR or do I just, I, you know, I don't hate, I don't like auto racing. It's yeah. just, you know, I could say this about F1. I, I say this about soccer, football and the rest of the world. You know, there's some sports you just don't like. And so I just, that's why I said, I would never say Bravo NASCAR because I just don't get auto racing, but it's, it's huge. And so I don't yeah. want to insult anybody that anyway. Yeah. Hey, we got to go. That was okay. excellent. Uh, we'll be back in a, two or three weeks because when you're dealing with people at work, somebody's going to do great stuff and somebody's going to screw up. So we're never short of material. So no. until the next time. Thanks, Katie. Right on. Thanks, Mike. At Oculus Insights, we care a lot about animals, but we also care about the health of the veterinary profession. Our goal is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success.